0: welcome to fifth walls fly on the wall podcast where we explore the shifts occurring in real estate technology and society that are driving our cities towards a more equitable green and tech enabled future i'm your host brendan wallace of Fly in the Wall, I am joined by Jeff Speck, Principal at Speck & Associates. We discuss the detrimental effects of urban sprawl and the surprising ways cities are transforming as a result of the restrictions created during the pandemic. Enjoy the conversation. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for joining. Where are you coming in from today?
1: I'm in my office, which is also my home office, which is in Brookline, Massachusetts.
0: Nice. Well, well, Jeff, can you maybe just start by just walking us through broadly your career in city planning and as an urban designer?
1: Sure, so uh, I always thought I'd be an architect. That was my imagination. Even when I was a really small kid, I was drawing houses for my classmates, designing. You know, I designed a house for every one of my classmates in fifth grade. I, well, okay, first I was an investment bank. <laughs> <laughs> But I only did that for two years because I'd worked for enough architects who said, if you can do anything else with your life, this is a miserable profession. And you should find something else that makes you happy. So getting out of college in 1985, around the time of the movie Wall Street, I went to Wall Street and did that for a couple of years, knowing pretty much that I'd go back to school. As I was going back to school, I discovered the work of Andres Duany and Elizabeth plater Zeiberg or DPZ is what their firm is called. And I was like, wow, this is design, but it's at a a scale that really impacts people's quality of life much more than just buildings. And uh, let me find these guys. So I started a relationship with them while I was in school. I eventually graduated from architecture school in 93, and thank God they had an opening in their firm, which was in Miami. Uh, And I moved to Miami, I spent 10 years there, mostly as director of town planning at that firm, doing these projects with them. And the projects were either New, mixed-use, walkable, complete communities. And we would only take on that kind of project um, if it was a new new community, or plans for existing downtowns, principally, almost entirely, when we looked at an existing city, it was almost always the downtown. Um, and how can we make the downtown more vital? Uh, and you know, part and parcel with the divvying up of the landscape into these individual pods. Was the decanting of the cities into those pods and the emptying of the city centers, and of course, the 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 state of the city centers in the '70s and '80s was so bad. Um, there was a lot of work to be done to bring people back. And so, those are really the two types of projects that I still do in my career. I took a I took a break. Uh, well, just to to walk you through the rest of it very quickly. Andres Andres's famous talk, which was which he called "Towns versus Sprawl," was just so moving to me, and it was really the the lecture that changed my whole orientation. And I told.
0: When was that Jeff?
1: He first started giving it probably around 1985 and I first saw him give it at the Boston Museum of Fine Arts in 1989 when i had started the relationship with the firm as a summer job when I was i um, starting architecture school and I actually wrote them a letter and I said oh my god this I had met him but I wrote him this letter him and Liz and I said this lecture needs to be a book and they never wrote me back <laughs> even though uh, we had a bit of a relationship um, but it took me until you know it took me about 10 years eventually in the firm to convince them that I could write this book for them and with them. That book became Suburban Nation. Suburban Nation was pretty much the best-selling planning title of the uh, 2000s. It came out in 2000. And it helped me get appointed to the National Endowment for the Arts, where I was design director. So from uh, 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 2003 to 2007, I was a director of design at the National Endowment of the Arts, that moved me to Washington, D.C. I got to work with a ton of the the, the, NEA has this amazing program called the Mayor's Institute on City Design, where we put mayors together with designers. Every two months somewhere in America, we would collect up eight mayors and eight designers. We put them in a room together. Each mayor would bring their most pressing urban design challenge. We would try to solve the challenges. But really, we were trying to turn the mayors into design mayors. And the program has been very effective over 35 years in doing that to thousands of mayors, but that introduced me to a lot of mayors. I got to uh, build relationships that led to future work with them. And I started my own firm when I left the NEA in um, OSET. So I've been doing more work on my own since then for mayors for foundations in cities, for real estate developers, always focusing on making places more walkable. And then the final part of the story was all that experience kind of went into my my big book, which was Walkable City, which is the one you've probably seen, uh, that came out in 2012. I'm just now working on the 10th anniversary reissue, uh, where I'm I'm writing a big essay uh, to represent it. But that book was really tried to do what I've been trying to do my whole career, which is essentially to take these design ideas, which can be kind of esoteric and a little bit technical, and to open them up and make them available to everybody. You know, people who just are smart and care about cities, which is so many people, you know, there's often been barriers to them participating in this conversation. Of course, they all care very much about what's happening in their own communities. They want their communities to be more walkable, to be more livable, but often they lack the vocabulary or the feeling of the credential that might allow them to do that. Uh, the book Walkable City was really created to connect more people to that conversation, and it's it's been I think the best-selling planning book of its you know of its decade, and I'm really glad that you know I hear from all the people that reach out to me that it's really connected them to their communities in, in a new way. Often I have to apologize because they read the book and they're like, oh my god, now I now I really hate my neighborhood. <laughs> I can't walk anywhere. I'm realizing now how miserable I am and I apologize and we see what we can do but that led to the TED talks and the other stuff I've done that that's really helped to spread spread this message. It's really just good planning. It's really from the very beginning the whole town versus sprawl thing, you know, we've called it Traditional town planning, which turned off the, the liberals like me. We called it new urbanism, which it still is called, that turns off some of the conservatives. But when you re when you reconsider it and reframe it within the rubric of walkability, it's not political, it's accessible, and it's very easy to talk
0: about. It. And maybe just to kind of creep up on what walkability means, why is urban sprawl bad?
1: So how much time do we have? <laughs>
0: The answer to that question is the
1: same answer as to why are walkable communities good, and that's because we define sprawl as as being places where you're utterly dependent on the auto. So, in a walkable community, you can have a car, you can drive a car. I like I like to say the car in in a walkable community community the car is a is an optional instrument of freedom as opposed to being a mandatory prosthetic device that you need to live your life. But the principal way that I would describe sprawl is a uh, landscape in which automobile ownership or use is essential to your uh, viability. And of course, uh, that implies one of the very first things that's bad about it, was, is, which is actually a third of us don't drive. A third of us are either too old, too young, uh, too infirm. Maybe we have a drinking problem. You know, There are other things that, that make us not drivers. And those people become dependent on those who do drive and actually become burdens to those who drive. So th- you know that's one thing the 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 different things i'm going to describe to you all end up pointing in the same direction which i hate to say because i grew up loving cars and i still love the individual car that i might own or or get to drive but the problem is cars all the things that cars do in in, in addition to separating us making us psychopaths when we're in the public sphere, causing the landscape to spread out in such a way that it's incredibly inefficient. You know, and when you design the landscape around the car, you're requiring uh, an amount of cables and wires and pipes and everything else that is the real sustainability issue, right? The car polluting is a sustainability problem, but the way that we spread out when the car has determined the shape of the landscape is actually a bigger part of our sustainability uh, footprint problem that CARS enable. CARS have been a tremendous uh, negative impact on our health. And the best study, although you know, you've probably heard a lot of the anecdotal stuff, but the best study I've seen is a very recent blind study that was done in China. Where it's a lottery that determines whether you have the ability to, to buy a car or not. Yeah. And so they tracked the people who won the lottery versus those who didn't win the lottery. And if you were over fifty uh, and you won the lottery, uh, a few years later you were twenty pounds heavier than all the people that didn't <laughs> that didn't win the lottery. Uh, the point being that you know it's clearly it's clear uh, all the evidence shows that, the, the, the lack of physical activity that you get once you become a driver, as opposed to someone who walks and takes transit or bicycles or does anything else, is one of the principal causes of our of our uh, health crisis in this country. And, and there's actually a whole phalanx of epidemiologists, some of whom wrote a book called Urban Sprawl and Public Health that came out about a decade ago, actually about 15 years ago, that said, you know, our American diet is really bad, but it's not having the same impact as our American inactivity. And that's the real source of our, uh, you know, of our, uh, of our health problem. Um, Yeah, go ahead.
0: And 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 so where does that then intersect with walkability? Obviously, like it, in some ways, they seem like extremes, right? Polar extremes of one another—an extreme sprawling environment that is characterized by you know basically the the car as the conduit as the way to get around versus you know walkability and using your own feet and walking out of your door and having this kind of streetscape. So like paint that contrast for me.
1: Well, I think um, you know the the work that we do is a couple things. First. You can do lots of you can do lots of little things that independently may not seem like much but each of those little things causes people to walk a little bit more in their environment you can even make purely suburban environments more walkable by making them safer you know just with simple improvements to streets so that's part of it but we're also trying to get people to move to more walkable places and that's a campaign i suppose of hearts and minds but really the, the impediment isn't that people don't want to move, it's that they can't. It's that we, we have a tremendous undersupply in the United States of actually affordable, walkable uh, places. So uh, a lot of the work that we do both as advocacy, but also when we do downtown plans and try to uh, change existing places is to get more housing in those areas. And you look at a downtown area and you look at the different balance of uses in most of them, and you'll see that housing is in the US compared to say Canada or most other countries. In the U.S., most of our downtown cores have a gross undersupply of housing. Meaning and housing
0: is not integrated into the rest of the commercial real estate that you see in these urban cores.
1: Uh, in the in the oldest, most traditional cities, you find a fair amount. Of course, there was the big push for CBDs in the you know central business districts and financial districts and all of that in the middle of the 20th century that caused a lot of that to be evacuated. And then, of course, most business districts that were built in the middle of the 20th century, yes, had zero housing in them. So the other interesting thing to think about is if a, if a walkable place is, is necessarily a mixed use place because you're walking, you need to be able to walk from use to use, which means they're close together, then uh, only places that have a good balance of uses are going to be going to be walkable. It's very difficult to get that balance of uses in a strictly residential area because, you would know, if you're a real estate developer adding any other use to a residential neighborhood is, is impossible. I mean, they come after you with pitchforks if you try to put a 7-Eleven in the cul-de-sac, right? So the opportunities where they exist are in the commercial place. The places that have an over-representation of commercial real estate are the places where it's very easy to add a ton of housing. Well, I wouldn't say it's very easy, but it's possible to add a ton of housing. Most of the work we do in America's urban cores then includes strategies, and frankly, the encouragement of government subsidies including deferred taxation, tax financing and other things, tax abatement, to get tons of housing, attainable housing in our city course.
0: And, and obviously, like, there, there's this concept that I, I know you've spoken about the, the the 24 hour city, and I'm in, you know, I'm in New York, right, which has this kind of descriptor is the, the city that never sleeps. Like, what does that mean? And how does that intersect with a walkable city?
1: Well, you know, the new term of art that has been popularized in Paris by Mayor Anne Hidalgo is the 15-minute city, which is a, a, that's the new thing everyone's saying. The 15-minute city is just a re-presentation of what we've been talking about the whole time, which is that everything is close at hand, um, whether on foot or even on bicycle, you can get to most of your daily needs quickly. The 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 twenty four hour city has always been a bit of a confusing term to me because obviously in most places certain number of those hours it's dark there's no one out in the street um, but there are people there right there are people sleeping they're in the city so it just means that it's it doesn't mean that it's it doesn't it doesn't have to be New York that never sleeps right but you just have to be uh, there have to be people there the the whole time now the best discussion of this that I've read and the best discussion of so many things was Jane Jacobs conversation in The Death and Life of Great American Cities, the best planning book ever written, written, I think, in 62, or published in 63, where she talked about what she called time spread. And she asked the question, I'm guessing it's like 1961, and she's asking the question, why is there not a single good restaurant on Wall Street? Why is there not a single good gym on Wall Street? 250,000 people come here every day to work, and yet you can't get a really great meal. And the answer was that you can't do it with just a lunch craft. You know, a great restaurant or a great gym needs a lunch crowd and a dinner crowd. And once you achieve time spread, everything in the city becomes so much better because you have that audience that produces enough, you know, table turns for the restaurants to be absolutely the best and, and, and you know, the gym to have all the best equipment. So for me, the 24-hour city is the city that is floating the most other activity with all of the density that is bringing people to not just businesses, but to institutions and schools and other things in the neighborhood.
0: And, you know, when you think about the other side of it, right, so the, the failure to build a walkable city or, or the failure to build a 15-minute city or a 24-hour or city or, or not having time spread, what are the kind of non-obvious inequalities that derive from that at a, at a demographic level within a city?
1: Well, I would say the inequalities don't derive from the lack of mixed use. They derive from the lack of mixed housing and the way that we have Um, zoned with incredible precision, different types of housing in their communities. There's a really important book that outsells my book, uh, and I'm glad to see it, that you're probably uh, aware of called The Color of Law. And The Color of Law came out maybe three years ago, but it lays out very clearly some of the things that we kind of suspected, but didn't necessarily fully comprehend. We talked first about redlining. And if you're not educated in city planning, you kind of presume that redlining was something that banks did. And oh, banks won't loan to, you know, the, the definition of redlining is that you couldn't get a mortgage in neighborhoods of color, right? If a neighborhood was at all mixed mixed race back in the, I'm going to guess when it started, but at least back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, you couldn't get a loan. And everyone thought, oh, the banks are redlining these communities. In fact, it was the federal government through Fannie Mae and, and those organizations, it was the federal government's loan guarantee programs that did the redlining. So actually, it was you know Uncle Sam saying, oh, you can't get a mortgage in a uh, mixed neighborhood. Secondarily, you know, for many decades, from the beginning of, you know, um, after the Civil War, as soon as, as soon as Blacks could own property, there was, there were race-based restrictions in new neighborhoods. A friend of mine lives in the Ansley Park neighborhood in Atlanta, and he showed me the very, one of the very first advertisements for that neighborhood, which was back in the teens, and it said, if you live in Ansley Park, you have the guarantee of beautiful wide streets and this and that and 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 confidence that no person of color will ever live on your block. I mean that was how they used to do it. Eventually of course that was made illegal. And so those laws were replaced with single family zoning. Single family zoning was a way to achieve the exact same thing without mentioning race, but it had the impact, you know, de d- Juro, it was it was not race based, but de facto it was. And so single family zoning covers more square miles of zoned land in America than anything else. Um, A number of cities are abolishing it, Uh, not many, but a number of cities are starting to abolish it with the understanding of its racial background and the understanding that by creating an economic barrier to entry, you're actually creating a principally a a racial barrier to entry. So the principal way that the modern city causes inequality is uh, by building type based zoning that is effectively exclusionary.
0: And obviously, you know, as COVID happened, it kind of forced this moment in time where, you know, city planners and regulators and even real estate developers were forced to rethink, right, some of the assumptions they had previously operated under as cities literally just shut down what stay at home orders. What are some of the, the, the insights that you think positively came out of the COVID experience for, for everyone, for regulators, for planners, and for real estate owners?
1: Well, one insight that was only a revelation to some people was that, you know, rumors of my demise, if, if, if I am the city, rumors of, rumors of my demise are premature, like Mark Twain once said, I, you know, I can count on, I would need more, more than more, more digits than I possess to count the number of articles I read, and you probably did too, about how the city was dead. You know, we've now seen that the city is, it spreads disease and its, it's, uh, it's days are over. So the data, the data were very clear in, in showing that, yes, per capita, well, of course, COVID happened in the cities first, because that's where the people were gathering. So it happened in New York first and Boston first and other, other busy places. But per capita, and it, it, and it turned out that the suburbs were more dangerous and even some rural areas were more dangerous overall than the cities per capita for COVID. And of course, some of the densest places in the world, like Hong Kong and Singapore and other places with good health protocols, had almost no COVID. So first important thing to understand, it's not really answering your question, but the first thing to understand is that cities um, are not the problem and the cities we're seeing now are having a hell of a comeback, even though we haven't stopped COVID because of all the idiots among our population. Uh, we can get into that another time. Secondarily, this is probably what you're imagining uh, as my response. Uh, a lot of cities realized that they could rededicate a lot of their public space to non-automotive use. And since so many, since so fewer people were driving and um, there were lanes of, in, in my own town in Brookline, As a great example, uh, we had a four-laner. It's split by a train track. We have a four-laner in our our downtown center, Coolidge Corner, and two of those lanes were actually dedicated. Uh, We we took the parking that was beside the street and we moved it into those two lanes, so those two lanes could then be used to expand the sidewalk. We added bike and additional pedestrian facilities. A number of streets became closed, or as we call them, open. (laughs) Closed to cars, open to every other use, and you saw and still see people walking and families frolicking and playing in what were once areas dedicated just to cars. And then, of course, probably the most obvious and visible um, uh, aspect. And the one that was most demanded by the cities that were hurting for, for tax revenue or very fearful of the tax revenue that they weren't getting was the the dining parklets. And that's tons of parking spaces and even driving lanes and even entire streets, uh, one near here in Roslindale, dedicated entirely to to dining and how and so it, almost
0: like re, it reclaimed from
1: cars, yeah.
0: right? Really. The real,
1: so, so the real question is, you know, will these stay? And some of them are already going away. People are, are regretting it. And people, you know, the, the automotive hordes as I like to call them, are celebrating. But the cities are learning that they're getting fewer tax dollars from the parked cars than they were getting from the, um, you know, impacts of the revenue, the additional revenue that was coming to these businesses from people dining outdoors. And of course, the whole nurturing and friendly and, and communal supporting Nature of the city when you have more outdoor activity in the public space, a lot of people are, are coming to cherish that. In Boston, they did a poll and said, understanding that they take space away from automobiles, do you want these parking spaces to still be dedicated to dining? And eighty percent said yes. And I think seventy-eight percent answered yes when the question was, do you do you want to keep the additional bike facilities um, that we've received? And this is just a you know a, not an online poll where where people vote with their fingers, but it actually. Scientifically conducted poll of random citizens that 75, 80 percent want bike lanes and restaurants to stay uh, and not to give this space back to cars. So those are some of the important lessons. And cities like Paris have used COVID as an excuse to make huge, dramatic changes to the number of cars in their downtown. Paris is moving towards removing all cores, all cars from its center core of its downtown. I met Mayor Hidalgo when I was in Paris. Uh, 2 weeks ago they're full speed ahead on that. You know, you do what you can in your country, in your city. I don't think many American cities will be able to match the Paris example, but but we're trying, what they found in Paris, 61% of cyclists were people who hadn't been biking before. So it's incredible how the physical changes make behavioral change.
0: And, you know, as you as you think about like on the other side of this, um, what is what are the the insights that you wish regulators would take away they don't seem to be taking away. Um,
1: well, I think we kind of we all kind of talk out of two sides of our mouth on this. And if, if you're a planner working currently for cities or even for real estate developers, as I do, there's this real kind of cognitive dissonance happening around what we're saying the city needs to be and what we say the city wants to be and should be, particularly in the face of climate change and what we're still building. So how do you get over that hurdle when a developer is in a city, developers working in a city or a city is trying to grow? And they're not confident that they can build housing without one parking space per unit, for example. Because actually the way the city is currently shaped, everyone kind of does need a car. <laughs> so you know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you, if you build places that satisfy the current demand for, for cars and car use, then you're gonna keep creating a city in which car use is mandatory. So I think it's important to understand that there's kind of a, a leap of faith that we need to take. It's not gonna be led by developers Often, right? There's very few developers who are going to fight what they perceive of as the market. It can be led with cities, and cities like Paris can make the choice to say, uh, we're going to have a sector, perhaps, which offers this uh, opportunity of, of car light living. You're probably aware it's one of the few real estate developments that's attracted national venture capital. You're probably aware of the cul-de-sac phenomenon in, uh, I believe it's in Mesa, right, outside of Phoenix, where they're building a, a new community. It's not huge, but it's hundreds and hundreds of apartments that's entirely car-free. It isn't even perimeter parking, you know, like they do in, in uh, Vauban in, in the Netherlands. I mean, it's it's no parking For hundreds and hundreds of units on transit, in a not very walkable city, one of our least walkable cities, big cities, Phoenix. But there's an understanding, and I think it's a proper understanding, that there's a certain segment of the market that might even move from another region to live in this utopia. And I think that's got a lot of legs. And I have not been involved at all. I I regret it would be a perfect project for me. I've not been involved at all in the cul-de-sac project. But But I think that there's a I'd I'd like to think and I've heard that my books had an influence, but I think there's an incredible national, certainly international, but let's just talk America. I think I think every major city, a project like that, which is a kind of intentional community around not driving would sell out instantly as cul-de-sac has gotten pre reservations uh, already um, because it's an untapped market. Right. Who else is offered? So I think every, you know, every metro area could have a project.
0: Well, thank you so much, obviously, for sharing your your thoughts, Jeff. This has been such an interesting conversation. I think there's so much, that obviously, um, real estate owners can learn from just academia and, and and urban planning as a concept, but also in practice, all the lessons that that came out of COVID. So, thank you for for sharing all this. Well, thank
1: you for your your interest, and and uh, it's great that the work that you that you do intersects with this subject matter so so well. And, I hope that that you and your clients and colleagues will find ways to invest uh, deeply in walkability and those aspects of city planning that that make our cities better.
0: We hope to. Well, thanks, Jeff. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fly on the Wall. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com.